Hello and welcome to another episode of the Goals Allowed Football Show on Burn FM. My name's Jake Sandy and I'm joined in the studio by Danny Hodges and coming back into the squad after his brief trip to Wembley, Jules Singh, and also a very special guest who we just did a bonus podcast for about the new Tottenham manager, Amy Purser. How are, how, how are you guys? Great, great. Good to get the full squad back. Thanks. And we've got a new member. Yeah. <laughs> a new signing. A lone member. Just one more and we can I start our own. alone, came up with another sign. <laughs> just one more and we start our own five-a-side team. Right, so I thought this week we would start with a question of the week, sort of motivated by the fact that, as many people probably will have heard by now, given the fact it is literally the only thing that has been being talked about in the football media, Jose Mourinho has gone to Tottenham, obviously as a former Chelsea manager. And with myself being a Chelsea fan, it does sting a little bit. So the question this week is, what manager slash player do you dislike the most for joining one of your rivals? So we'll start with Danny, that's right. Um, Stephen Corker. He was on loan with Swansea, he knew him really well, and we all thought he was going to sign him. And then the year Cardiff came up, he got bought by Cardiff, and just and then scored against us and won the game for Cardiff. So yeah, that I would also have to say, I'm not saying Stephen Corker, he also played for Liverpool, but... No, just, just great player. No. Great player. <laughs> um, mine would probably be oh, Philippe Coutinho. That one is, that that hurt. I know not not a direct Premier League rival, but if you look at it like European level, like he was our best player for years. That 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 really hurt. And I think for me, it's got to be Sol Campbell. Really, I think there's no other option there. It, watching him celebrate winning winning the league in front of our fans at White Hart Lane after he'd left us to join the guys down the road was truly heartbreaking. Yeah, I think it's definitely a bigger thing when it's a sort of player that has become very integral to your squad. I think that obviously Coutinho was sort of the lightning rod in that Liverpool squad. Like, if they're ever struggling for a goal, he'd definitely pop up with one, given he's probably their most mercurial player they've had for quite a while, I'd say. Obviously, before Salah and Mane and people like that. So, it's definitely... Who's your your Um, I I don't... In a sense, I would say Jose Mourinho, but I feel like... It feels like such an age that he was uh, from Ch- at Chelsea. Like it feels like longer than for like, four years, five years that he, since he was at Chelsea the second time. And I think I'm also so grateful for everything he did at the club and made sort of his manager, his first stint as manager, definitely is what made me fall in love with Chelsea. Like the way he conducted himself in press conferences and stuff was something that was so different to what I'd seen in other like football managers and stuff. He sort of brought with him this sort of suave charm that sort of got under other managers' skin but like when you were behind him you really sort of thought that he was that guy like and the way the players would just run through a brick wall for him it was just sort of enchanting to watch what he did at the club so I'd feel too bad to say that it was him that I disliked the most so I don't really know I can't think of any other Chelsea players who've gone I mean the David Luiz thing's a bit annoying but I mean I can't believe you're not saying Hazard I think the Hazard thing is he was his head wasn't at Chelsea for a long time and I think that he did give us so many years of service at being our best player that I did feel happy for him that he was finally able to fulfil a lifelong dream so it is very difficult to certainly very difficult to begrudge him that I felt like with Hazard it kind of run its course yeah exactly he had, had his time at Chelsea I felt like if he stayed even, even longer he probably would have become a villain type player yeah I think it was sort of he was you, people forget like he joined us when he was 22 I think and stated he was 27 so he gave us the 
some of the best years of his career, so it's definitely one that I wouldn't begrudge him for leaving. But anyway, after that sort of monologue from me about some <laughs> various Chelsea players, um, we will very briefly touch on the Tottenham uh, situation at the moment. Obviously, myself, Jules and Amy did, as I said, the... Um, podcast that will be out on our feed that where we sort of talk through it so I just wanted to bring Danny in on that and what, what, what you think about this sort of decision to replace Pochettino who done so much good work with the club with a manager like Jose Mourinho um, It's a weird one because Pochettino is a world class manager, he's a top, he's one of the best in the world and there's very few you could maybe say in front of him and with what the resources he's had and the player development he's done, I don't know if there's maybe anyone on par in my opinion of that Who's had who's done accomplished as much with how li- how little he's had, but I've read some articles about how maybe there was time for change that the, the squad looked stale and a lot of players were s- talking about the training methods that they were all kind of there was nothing new and I think maybe with the way that even though they got to th- they, they finished third and they got to the Champions League final they lost a lot of games in this calendar year and I think maybe. That was kind of overlooked by the fact that they got to Champions League final and they just said, well, next year, next season we'll get signed players and he'll make a good start. But it didn't kind of come to that. And I think Daniel Levy or Levy has kind of just made a decision to be like, well, Mourinho's on the market I'll, before he gets snapped up by someone else, possibly Real Madrid if Zidane gets sacked. Then I'll sign him in the hope that, and just to replace Pochettino because he just doesn't look like he wants to be there either. Yeah, I think one of the big things that Amy spoke about so eloquently on the show we did was about how the Champions League final loss, well, making the Champions League final, sort of certainly papered over a lot of the cracks that have been present in the uh, Tottenham squad throughout the that calendar year that sort of has bled over into this season. And I was just sort of wondering whether you think that, given more time, do you think that Pochettino ever would have worked his way out of it? Um, I like to think he would have done. Um, I loved him as a manager and I my, my first thought when the news broke that he sacked I thought we should be backing him not not sacking him as I said in, in the podcast we have had a lot of injuries with a lot of the signings he brought in so I think he should have been given time to let those signings properly work their magic per se um, but then again we're four points above the relegation zone and if it didn't work out we would not have left an awful lot of time to get back up there so I think it's one of those things where, yeah, I would have liked to have seen more time, but had we given it, it this season possibly could have been a total write-off and now hopefully it won't be so much for car crash. Yeah, certainly a lot of ifs and buts when you look at sort of what has happened at Spurs over whether winning the Champions League would have made a difference or not, whether Pochettino eventually would have given the right backing, bringing in some new faces, perhaps getting rid of players who didn't want to be there, how it would have panned out, but... It is what it is, and Jose Mourinho on Saturday will be sat in the dugout at the Spurs Stadium. Is that what it's called these days? Uh, playing at West Ham away this weekend. No, oh, it's West, yeah. it's at West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be sat in the dugout at the Stadium. That's even more confusing because Top. I was going to say they've been Upton Park. They don't play there anymore. They play at the yeah, too many new stadiums. The Olympic Stadium. So, Jules, I'm just wondering how you think. Do you think that he will be able to make an instant impact, or do you think it will be a sort of? Uh, period of transition that Tottenham will have to sort of endure as he gets his message across to the players? I think I think he will be able to make an instant impact but that's not just because of you know it, his like previous history of being able to do that I think it's it's been quite tight in the Premier League this season and you know like 
string three or four wins together and suddenly you're up to sixth or seventh. But that's not that's not to take away w- from from what he can do because, like we've seen, um, with his second stint to Chelsea, with what he initially did at Man United, that he's very capable of of getting another squad of players and, and then bringing them bringing them up to scratch. Yeah, I, think I was just looking at the Premier League table. I know you said there wasn't much difference between the teams. There is actually between Tottenham in 14th with 14 points and Sheffield United, who are fifth, are only on 17 points. So it's only really a three-point swing that they need with the teams above them in order to sort of get back in contention for, I'd probably say at this point, Europa League football, as I think the gap between Sheffield United and Man City is eight points, and then to Chelsea it's nine points. So I think given that there are... 12 games already played which is basically a third of the season it could be a bit un- an unassailable lead that the teams above them have built up specifically in the top four but I think definitely they are in contention to play in the Europa League do you think that next season that would be a competition Joe Mourinho would target should they get into it? Um, well he, he did with Man United and we know he won it um, I won't say no to a Europa League trophy after the trophies we've won in the last 10 years personally it uh, would be a welcome addition to the trophy cabinet um, I do think, though, that, that the aim is to get back into the Champions League, where I think our fans do believe that is where we belong, um, and the league as well. You know, for the last few seasons, we have been up there, we have been challenging. Hopefully, under Mourinho, we can get back to that and potentially get a little bit closer than we have done it before. But like I said, I wouldn't say no to a Europa League trophy. I saw a stat that said um, it. There obviously isn't uh, no trophies up for grabs till twenty twenty. Uh, for Tottenham could win but it'd be the first decade since the 1950s I believe Tottenham haven't won a trophy and I think only United's record goes back further than that yeah that I've, I've seen that as well and it, sadly it's, it's very very yeah. true the last time we won something was the League Cup back in 2008 against against Chelsea so yeah nothing now until 2020 but hopefully we can change that I don't next year I don't think I can see why Daniel Levy is signed Mourinho and I think it is kind of a smartish smart decision in the sense that Tottenham isn't the club it kind of used to be in the early, well, in the like the mid two thousands and uh, the early, a few years ago when you had Andre Villa Boas and Harry Redknapp, which you maybe get to the Champions League once every few seasons or you'd have a good cup run. Where now, now nowadays you are a certified top team who has one of the best stadiums, if not the best stadium in Europe, and one of the best training facilities. So it kind of it nowadays does seem like you with the way United is kind of. Uh, I don't know if you could say on a downward spiral on some other teams. Arsenal just doesn't seem to have got running. I think Tottenham is smart that he's got another top world class manager and not they've just not gone back to the top the Tottenham of the early two thousands where they were just kind of a mid to upper kind of where Everton is essentially. I think that's something that we should actually give Pochettino a lot more credit for. Yeah. He completely changed that club. Um and I think because he didn't win trophies, people overlooked that. But we can't overlook the fact that he did a fantastic job in getting Tottenham to becoming top four regulars and challenging up there for that for that title and getting us to the final last year of the Champions League. So he did a fantastic job, whether he won trophies or not. And rival fans like to taunt and say they never won a trophy under him, but he did fantastic work with, as you said earlier, very very limited funds. Yeah. And I'd like to see some other managers try and do that. Yeah, yeah. one thing I just wanted to touch on quickly before we just finish this segment is the fact that I think Tottenham where they are at the moment is definitely a crossroads situation and I think obviously time will tell as to whether it was a good idea from Daniel Levy but I believe he does deserve some sort of credit in order to make he's made a what some people consider a harsh but definitely a decisive decision in this point because I think if you look at well I think the exception of the rule would be Sir Alex Ferguson but I think that's a conversation for a whole other day but if you look at managers that have 
been at clubs for a long time, like at Arsene Wenger, there have definitely been crossroad moments where the people higher up in the club could have stopped it and said, right, that's the that's the limit, and then from this point we need to make a decision and we're going to go with the one that maybe isn't as popular, but they would go, but they do go for it anyway. Like, for example, when uh, was it Arsene Wenger won the FA Cup for the first his first trophy for years, I think that would have been a good point to say, thank you, but we need to move on as a club. And I think it is definitely good that Tottenham have made that decision. So anyway, uh, we'll move away from the sort of Tottenham side of it as we did cover it in quite extensive detail, which I'm sure everyone can listen to and hear more of our thoughts and look back at the international break, which has just finished. Some people may be glad of that, some people may not be. But the first club I wanted to take a look at was England. Obviously, last week on Thursday, while we were recording the show, England won 7-0 at Wembley against Montenegro and Jules and Amy were in attendance. We were. Is that Indeed, issue? we were. It's yeah. a very good game. Unfortunately, it wasn't on behalf of the goals allowed podcast. Our budget doesn't quite stretch to <laughs> yeah. sending people to Wembley, but they can tell us what the atmosphere was like there. Um, at the start, it was it was really good. Obviously, we had the early goals, which really helped sort of get everyone up and, and up and happy. You know, Kane, the captain, got a hat trick, so mood was good. But after the sixth one went in. It did get a little bit static, as you as you could expect. You know, Montenegro weren't the greatest team in the world, and it was a lot of. It wasn't boring, but it definitely wasn't as exciting as it could have been, especially once you've seen six goals go in. Um, and it did get to a stage where people were taking more joy out of seeing if many paper aeroplanes could, in fact, reach the pitch and hit a player, as we saw in a video a few few years back. I think what, what was the count? I think four four paper airplanes ended up yeah. hitting the pitch itself. Yeah, when, when that first one landed, I think it was the biggest cheer of the night. I think it got a bigger cheer than 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 all of the goals put together. The players were probably very confused about that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, with obviously you mentioned the Harry Kane hat trick, do you feel like that was a big moment to sort of see as an England fan? Like, obviously, saying England's captain do something that. Is, would be considered sort of extraordinary if you want to use it like that. Did you sort of feel the sort of atmosphere in the stadium lift when they saw that Harry Kane had got a hat trick? I, I I think so. Um, um, you know, it, it being like a London thing as well. Briefly going back to Spurs, but very briefly, um, I think it kind of shows that if you've got very pacey wingers and like attacking fullbacks, then Harry Kane can be one of the best strikers in the world. Is is one of the best strikers? In the yeah, world. I'd argue he's maybe outside Lewandowski probably the best striker like out and out if you take Messi Ronaldo and all that out of the bit I maybe think Lewandowski is probably the only one I'd say natural striker better than him at the moment I mean looking at the Euro qualifiers that have just taken place obviously there was 10 games uh, Harry Kane finished with 12 goals which was the most out of any player even being Ronaldo by a goal and he also scored in every single one of those games I, mean, I believe he was the first England player to do that since I believe about 1908 I think it may have been Jimmy Greaves I think it was earlier than that. It was definitely the n- n- early 1900s, I believe. Oh, that, that's that's even better. Because that's when records were just mental. And it, I, it wasn't a um, quill and parchment. It yeah. was because that was before the World Cup and Euros had even started. I believe it was for the Olympic qualifying. But I, I'm not sure. I should have probably looked that up a bit further. Oh. But I think it is very interesting to see that how well Harry Kane does play in an England shirt, and he is on, I believe, 25-ish goals for England now. 24-25 so I think I looked it up I think it was only something like 22 goals behind Rooney's all-time goal-scoring record I think Rooney's 51-51 so what would that be? 
like 29 goals? Yeah, I think it's 28, something like that. 28, 29. But, so. uh, it, you know, he's still got many years left in him, yeah. Yeah, certainly yeah. his goal per game ratio, would, I would imagine, would be a bit greater than Wayne Rooney, certainly. Yeah, because Wayne Rooney was never... He was always a good goal scorer, but he's never been as prolific as Harry Kane has been. I mean, the only comparison you probably make of the last prolific English striker has probably been Alan Shearer, but he never really performed that well for England. Well, I think the only one you can really compare to is probably Gary Lineker, yeah. the only two English players that have ever won a golden boot So at the World Cup, like yeah. in an England shirt. I think English fans, especially if you bring club rivals into it, do underestimate. Harry Kane a lot I think he gets a lot of unnecessary stick you know people call him a stat padder but you can only score against what's put in front of you and he can't play the likes of France and Germany every week who he has also scored against my yeah. dad yeah I was just going to say on the, the stat padder thing you said there that he is incredibly good at putting weaker teams to the sword I think we saw that in the World Cup with his hatcher against Panama and stuff that he is certainly one player that he just loves scoring goals like I don't think there's anything that gives him more joy in life than putting the ball into the back of the net and it's so refreshing to see an England player with the sort of hunger that he clearly has for not only personal accolades but helping out the team I think as a captain it's definitely the right sort of example that he should be setting to sort of try and raise up the games of the uh, other players it's amazing what a striker can do when they're not on corner kick duty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think the last year it would have been a lot different had he been in that box and not taking corners Another interesting stat that came out of the Euro, 2020, Euro 2020 qualifiers for, for, the, um, for England was that, I believe, Raheem Sterling finished second in the assist chart, which is sort of quite interesting. You consider that he's not what you consider maybe a creative midfielder, he's more of an attacking, goal-scoring midfielder. So do you think that going into Euro 2020, Raheem Sterling and Harry Kane might be able to strike up a partnership that could lead them deep into the competition? I'd like to see so, because... I feel like Raheem Sterling has not performed at the same, maybe not necessarily the same level, but not on the same goal store, goal scoring level like he uh, he does at City. And maybe that's just because of the system Pep's implemented there. It's not obviously he's not going to translate and be exactly the same in the England setup. But it would be different. It'd be nice to have a different goal scoring option because if you when you do come against the better teams, as we've said, Harry Kane can score against the better teams, but. When you come against the great teams as well, or the really good, just the really good ones, they will be able to mark him out of the game. Or, and if you have someone else that can provide a threat in front of goal, then it's always it's always beneficial. As we've seen with France, Ed Griezmann and, and Mbappe, and while Giroud didn't score in the World Cup, he also provided this threat of being able to link up play. I think that's one thing though with the squad that um, was called up for England in the, these recent qualifiers is you have a lot of goals in that team aside from Sterling and Kane and don't get me wrong Sterling and Kane are probably two of the best attacking players I think we've got up there at the minute especially in England so to see them if they could form a formidable par- partnership next year it you know might be too early to say but it would be dangerous to stop them I think it's definitely one thing that certainly helps uh, Sterling and whoever will be playing on the other wing for England, perhaps Sancho, maybe Hudson-Odoi, is the fact that Harry Kane is also excellent at dropping deeper. I mean, he sort of play balls sort of from deep into wider players, and then he just knows exactly where to be in the box in order to, like... Well, it's got, basically got tap-ins, but I mean, I think the art of tapping in is maybe sort of underappreciated in the sense that you've got to sort of have that sort of knowledge of where the ball's going to be before it's played there. I think, obviously, Gary Lineker is probably the greatest example of someone who had such a good awareness of where the ball was going to be before it even arrived. Yeah, like in, a bit like Inzaghi as well. Was it that Sir Alex Ferguson quote that said he was born offside? <laughs> because he was just someone who's not technically 
good. You didn't think he was able to run that fast, but was just always in the right place at the right time. And I think that's not really seen as much in modern football now because you have you don't really have that striker who is uh, that pro that prototype striker. Who, they're all nowadays that you, you kind of come back for the ball a bit like Aguero and then run with it and play it whereas Harry Kane kind of has that bit of old fashioned which has been lost I think as well that the fa- modern fans these days don't like to see those those sort of strikers that Harry Kane is you know essentially let's be honest tap-ins and, and penalties do make up the majority well not majority of his goals but a, a fair chunk of them but as you said as you said it, it's quite a skill to master I think you know at the last World Cup both Ronaldo and Messi missed penalties Harry Kane didn't miss a single one he took at the World Cup last year um, and fans don't like to see that they like to see those wonder goals that are hit in from 25 yeah, yards or, or the like players that 25 run, from, yard run. Yeah, take, run make the runs from the halfway line it just adds that bit more excitement so moving on from that game England uh, did qualify from that game but they did have to play a final a group game away in Kosovo, which I don't think you guys flew out to Kosovo specifically no. for. No, not quite. It was one of the background I was watching on TV. <laughs> that's, that's as far as the budget could stretch. Obviously, their um, reception in Kosovo was a major talking point. It was very interesting. So, uh, I believe it was in the ni- late 90s, the Kosovo, uh, the war in Kosovo, Eng- the English army were drafted in in order to sort of bring about the peace. And I think that the way that they ingratiated themselves amongst Kosovan people was definitely represented by in the stadium with their appreciation for them. I think that when the teams were announced over the Tannoy, the Kosovan announcer was only announcing the England players' first names and then the surnames were being chanted back by the Kosovan crowd, which I imagine if you were there was the most bizarre experience that you would never experience in a football ground ever again. So do you think that that atmosphere maybe, the sort of party atmosphere, maybe made the game a bit less competitive? Yeah, I, I I could see how that will work. Um, I mean, like you said, the the reception was always going to be was going to be a positive one. And it's also quite nice that uh, you just see this cost of a very young football, like a young football nation, and also in the broader picture, like in the first show we talked about Bulgaria, which isn't that far away, and a lot of problems of uh, racism in that region. Whereas going to Kosovo, it was quite welcoming and quite. It, it it just felt ve- it felt very nice. It, it was very respectful, and just that you could go out there and enjoy and talk to the other opponents' fans. It just it seemed like a really nice just place to go when watching it. Like just very nice receptiveness. I think it probably would have been a bit strange for the players, though. Do you know yeah. what I mean? You, you spend ages hyping yourself up for these super competitive games, and you go to Kosovo. They've already qualified, and they're, they're greeting you like they're your own national team it must be very strange because you know you hear all these ex-players talk about how it's the, that hostile atmosphere that does get them hyped up for these games and uh, as you said I, th- I think that might con- might have contributed slightly to the performance that we saw and, and the less competitive nature of the game Yeah I'm not sure if I mentioned when I said it it was a 4-0 victory for England away in Kosovo but I watched the first half of the game and I did see a lot of points where Kosovo were making very attacking well their attacking intent was certainly very potent very specifically in the sort of first half hour and I think that given that Kosovo are certainly a good team I don't want to disparage them in any way but looking at how vulnerable England did look from players that aren't obviously not, I don't think any of their players playing in the Premier League for example I thought it may be indicative of the fact that England still have a lot still have a way to go in terms of sorting out their defence ahead of the uh, Euro 2020 that are obviously coming up but do you think that because they'd already qualified this and the, obviously the atmosphere we were just talking about it perhaps isn't the be- most representative example of what England can do? I think I think all those were, were indicative factors 
I think you've also got to take into account that Tyrone Mings started, who probably for the World Cup won't be starting centre-back. I think uh, Maguire and Stones, if both fully fit, will be the starting centre-backs. And if they both perform well for their clubs from now until the end of the season, I think we're, we're very capable of having a solid back five. I don't think he'll do a. I don't think he'll do a back three as he did in the World Cup. No. Um, you got Chilwell and uh, Trent, or and you've well, also ho- got hopefully, hopefully it's Trent. Or you've right. also got Wan Bissaka. Who, if you went defensively, you'd probably maybe put Wan Bissaka right back and Trent in midfield or a bit further up. I saw Trent in midfield against against uh, Montenegro. It, it did not work. Yeah, there's definitely not enough time that Gareth Southgate will have with the squad in order to try and implement a system where someone who is so good in their position is transferred to another one. I think that would be a very large mistake from Southgate, certainly. But looking at that defence, it was interesting you mentioned John Stones there as your pick for England's starting centre-back, but given his form for club this season has been not great, I want to say, do you think that there is space for another centre-back to maybe come in during the sort of games in between now and Euro 2020 and sort of stake a claim for the spot I mean I remember a few weeks ago and I stand by this comment um, Joe Gomez has the capability to become one of England's like best starting centre-backs it's just a shame that you know you've got Van Dijk playing for Liverpool and whoever is playing next to him playing at such a good level that there's there's no real way that Joe Gomez can break into the team. He's also like only 22. He's got a, a lot of years ahead of him as well. Who would you replace in the back uh, back two out of Maguire and Stones then? Probably Stones. I mean, like like Jake said, um, uh, I think uh, has Otamendi been been preferred for City? I, I, I feel like he has been. Are they all injured? They've had a lot of centre back problems, Probably. haven't they? I know. <laughs> Fer- I know. Fernandinho has, has has been. He definitely would be a first choice. Let's, yeah. If you know, if everyone was fit, he wouldn't. Necessarily be your first name down on the team sheet. I think. I think if if there's a way for for Gomez to get more game time for Liverpool, I think um, Harry Maguire and Joe Gomez at Euro, Euro 2020. I think they could perform a re- like have a really solid centre back partnership. I mean, aside from the international, uh, aside from the home games with Liverpool, like these games against Kosovo where we have already qualified, they do provide a very good opportunity for Gareth Southgate to try these younger players and the players that you don't necessarily see getting a lot of game time for their clubs, the likes of Joe Gomez. You know, they are the games where he he can try these younger players and see if they they can cut it. Not necessarily against you know the standard of teams we will be facing in Euros, but as you said, Kosovo did have a, a decent attacking threats so to see these young players and let, let them get that experience will will prove to be invaluable in a few years time so just before we move on from England myself and Danny discussed this last week and I thought I'd just bring you two in on this just in case you make any bold predictions out to be horribly wrong so we can cut them up and post them somewhere when it, <laughs> they go wrong do you think what where where is where do you think England should be targeting in Euro 2020 and where do you think they will I think oh, it's always difficult to predict with England. I think first and foremost, get out of the group stages. I think if they can make it to the quarterfinals, I think that's a that's a really good achievement. But I think they'll be targeting getting to the final, especially because the semi-finals and the final will be taking place in Wembley. I think having seen what happened at, at the World Cup last year, we are definitely capable of getting there. You know, getting us to at least to the semi-finals in my eyes. To be honest, if we can perform like we performed at, at the World Cup, then there is no reason why those players and that manager should not be able to get to the semi-finals and the final potentially, and and even go on to win it. As you said, it's it is a home 
you know, in abbreviations, tournament, the semi-finals, all their group stages, semi-finals and the finals are at Wembley. So they've got they've got the crowd, they've they've got the home the home backing. So there should be no reason for them potentially not to win it. Yeah, I think you've definitely echoed the sentiments that we had last week. I think the sort of minimum people are expecting is at least semi to quarterfinals. But moving on from England to another home nation that has, for the only third time in their history, qualified for a major international tournament, Wales. Uh, Danny, what are your thoughts immediately after sort of hearing that they have qualified? I kind of have to change a lot of what I've said about Ryan Giggs on this show. <laughs> uh, would, would you like to offer Ryan Giggs a formal apology? Yeah, I mean, like, I still don't agree with a lot of stuff he does, but I like he's done what many other managers haven't have done, haven't are we done in the about past. Football here, or are we talk about I other things imagine. in his life. <laughs> I think we should steer very, very, very <laughs> clear <laughs> other things in his life. Yeah. Um, but football wise, I mean, they. The first game he ever took charge was against Ireland. They played amazing, and then it always felt like it was a drop off after that. There was never that. He just felt a one off. Whereas against Hungary, they actually they were, I wouldn't say there was they were as good as they were against Ireland, but they were really good. They had a fully fit team, and it's the first time I've seen. I think it's the first time that Bale and Ramsey have started in a team since 2018, 2017. Like they've just one's always injured. It's like if if Ramsey's injured. It's Bale taking this turn to be injured, and then if Bale is injured, Ramsey's injured for like I'm pulling the hamstring when he's just gone to training. So it's always kind of one or the other. So it's quite nice to see how good we actually are, and we decisively beat Hungary, who while they haven't been as good in the last few qualifying well, games, they did lead, or and we're in the top two for most of the group stages. Um, and I would have said they were the favourites to go through because Wales are po- quite poor in Slovakia. Uh, didn't look that great either, um, but yeah, I'm kind of I'm I'm excited that it's last two tournaments they've got through to, to obviously 2016 where they got to the semi-finals and beyond that was 1958 the World In Cup. 1958 World Cup they reached the quarterfinals and went out to the eventual winners as you told us off air outside. Yeah, Brazil. So it's um it's very much like they seem to when they get to a tournament do well, but I'm just a bit worried that maybe. Because the last tournament, it was very much every player uh, was in their kind of peaks. He had Ashley Williams, who was, uh, in my opinion, like one of the best defenders in the league at that point. He was just for, for Swansea. I'm surprised uh, there was always rumours of him going Arsenal. He probably should have because he was really good. And then you had quite a lot of James Chester played really well, and then you had Wayne Hennessy was not, obviously never been by many rated well, but he had a really good tournament. And Ben Davis and a lot of these players just seemed to peak. At that peak at that tournament, whereas now it's we've got a lot of young players coming through, which is good for future tournaments. But it does feel like that a lot of the old guard have gone, and we haven't got we've got quite a young team. But I'm quite I'm excited because I up until the last two games didn't think we would get through. So yeah, I think what you said there about uh, the young players specifically is a very interesting point, and I think that that is one of the great things that came out of Ryan Giggs being appointed with the. Uh, uh, Wales FA having a sort of free hit kind of idea about it and he has been able to sort of manage the transition from Chris Coleman's team to forming a team that's certainly more in his image as someone who clearly from his time at working at the youth levels at United is clearly a big fan of younger players and I think this will be excellent experience for the players to have going to an international tournament maybe they don't do particularly well but I think what he has done is maybe set up the groundwork 
if it goes horribly wrong and they do end up being knocked out in the group stages, for example, if someone was to take over, he will have certainly left Wales in a better state than he found it. Yeah, um, I felt like the last tournament Wales were in, obviously 2016, outside Bale and Ramsey, a lot of the team, not misfits, but it kind of just felt like they were like how Robson Canoe, he didn't even have a team and he scored a, a Croatian against Belgium who, who won the favourites to win it. And so a lot of the teams, just a lot of players in the team didn't, they weren't like they were kind of just journeymen or they they weren't favourites at the club and then they just got to semi finals. Whereas now it's that they're very excited. I, I think the expectation is to get out of the group. That would be my expectation. Anything beyond that is, well, ecstasy. It's all just like, well, we'll just see where it goes. But. I think kind of you've got Ambadu, you've got David Brooks, um, Harry Wilson, uh, Ravi Matando. I think that's the pronounced name. He plays for Schalke. Daniel James. Daniel James, and you've got Joe Roden, Connor Roberts. Uh, oh, there's a Ben Davis can always do it. Yeah, job Ben Davis, uh, Chris Memphis for Bournemouth. Like, there's always there's quite a lot of young players that are coming through now. So I'm Ben Woodburn. Yeah, Ben Woodburn's still only 18, I think, or yeah. 19. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think if it's not the next tournament, maybe the next Euros could really see when you maybe see a strong Wales team for the first time in God knows, probably like early two thousands when Giggs was there. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting one to keep an eye on, especially when the draws makes. I think then we'll have sort of a better idea of the expectations that people will have of Ryan Giggs in the tournament. So, moving on from the international break, we will return to the more sort of comfortable territory of the Premier League <laughs> with our Premier League preview. Oh, it's good to be home. <laughs> <laughs> the first game I've got down here for us to just have a quick word about is the arguably the biggest game of the weekend, given its context. It is third against fourth, with Manchester City hosting Chelsea at the Etihad. Obviously, Chelsea are coming off the back of an incredibly good run of form. I think they've won seven Premier League games in a row, and Manchester City have sort of had the opposite fortune with their last time out being a loss to Liverpool and what I can only imagine was a mentally crushing defeat so do you guys think that the, that loss at Anfield will sort of weigh heavy in their minds? I hope so Yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think it will but this is a Guardiola team and they'll bounce back very quick whereas I feel many other teams may take two or three games or just maybe two games Guardiola's team against a Chelsea side who is above them they're just I just feel like they'll win I just think they'll really want to just get a win on the board so that they could close the gap between Liverpool. Pep doesn't like to be wounded either for yeah. too long. He'll, he'll bring them out fighting, to be honest. And I do think City will have it, have it in their locker to beat Chelsea. He's a serial winner. I think his lowest win percentage in a season was like 67%, and that was Man City's first ever season. His, his first ever season in Man City. With Mangala in the defence. Yeah. To play devil's advocate to that point, though, Obviously, as a Chelsea fan, I feel like I'm sort of <laughs> trying, trying to search for very small kernels of hope that I can have that we may be able to get a result this weekend. Is that seeing him on the touchdown at Anfield? He's obviously a very normally in the sort of outwardly at least is a very calm, collected character. But seeing his sort of outburst, firstly when the VAR decision didn't go his way and he was holding up like two fingers, like they've been denied two penalties. I think he was sort of lambasting yeah. the official about, and then certainly after the match was very doing the most aggressive thanking someone of the <laughs> match officials that I've ever seen in my life. So do you think that he has maybe sort of pushed the boundary a bit with that and maybe his players will have seen that and thought this isn't quite right and maybe that'll be weighing on them? I do think maybe his biggest enemy is himself. I pre- he probably just gets into his head so much 
and like wants to win so much that the first person he's gonna like come against is come against is himself. It sounds very kind of I don't know, just I don't know, cliche or like cheesy way, but it does feel like kind of that he's so intense and he's so into the, like that's maybe why he never lasts so long at a club is that he just gets so intense and so into it that it's because he's so uh, passionate. I think yeah. is, the, is the cliche. Yeah, it's but just kind of like he just he ends up getting so angry when stuff like that, which arguably should have gone their way, don't go their way. Maybe other man just could have been like, all right, we'll sort it out next game by winning. He just can't let it go. I think when it's such an important game though, like that, it it, it does get to managers more than it would in any other game. I think arguably losing that to Liverpool has lost them their defence of the of, of the title. Um, I think they can say goodbye to it after that loss. And I think if you feel like you've been aggrieved and you are so passionate about winning as Pep is, I think that can get to the heads. But I don't, I don't think it will have affected the players. I think it will just show the players that, that Pep doesn't want to lose. And I think that can only inspire a little bit of motivation into his players to go out against Chelsea, all guns blazing. Well, I think that's certainly one we'll be keeping a keen eye on the, uh, this weekend. Looking at it from a more sort of Chelsea-centric perspective, I personally think this is Chelsea's toughest uh, test of the season by far. Obviously, given that uh, City were run away, well, weren't run away, but they got an incredibly high points tally, and if it wasn't for such a great Liverpool team, they would have almost certainly been run away leaders in the Premier League last season. So I was just sort of been thinking over this week about how you think that Chelsea will set up for this game. Obviously, Kante is back in contention for a start. I think he played one game for... We started one game for France over the international break and then was left on the bench for the other one. I think just giving her a rest wasn't due to an injury. But Rudiger has, after his operation the summer, came back and is now injured again. So <laughs> with these sort of uh, developments in the players he has available, how do you think uh, Frank Lampard will set up Chelsea in order to sort of counteract what this Manchester City team can do? I think you have to match them in the midfield, to be honest. They have a very, they, they don't have the strongest back, back line. They don't have the strongest defensive line anymore. Um Tottenham, when we played them earlier this season, we matched them in midfield and we did give them a very, very good game. Um, they don't like it when they you play them at their own game. Uh, I think Frank Lampard needs to set that midfielder, and he has the players to do so as well. I think he does have the players to match City at the moment. And I think if you match them in that midfield, they, they won't know what to do, and I think they will struggle. And Chelsea could also stand a good chance of, if, if they can match them, bringing the game to them and... You know, not going along with the rhetoric that that City smashed everyone. I suppose. I think kind of Chelsea has a perfect tool in Kante. Is that he wasn't? There was always that thing last year with Sarri that he wasn't utilised properly and he he's played out of position. Whereas uh, Lampard's kind of put him back to where he's traditionally been and where many people seem best at. And like, if you've got a fit Kante, you're always going to be a, like a really good team. So against a weaker City, I mean, I feel that that. Like you said, match him in midfield. He's just him and Fernandinho just gonna be running all game. Yeah, I think the thing that I worry about the most with the way Chelsea have been playing of late, obviously playing against teams that weren't necessarily on Manchester City's level, is that when Chelsea are trying to build up play, they're not very patient with it. And I think that if they do make a mistake, which they have done, and get counterattacked on quite a lot, with players as good as the ones Manchester City have I think that could be a real issue, I think it even goes back as far as uh, Frank Lampard at Derby County last season, they did concede an awful lot of chances on the break and they just weren't punished because the team just didn't put away the chance but I think, obviously, as I said, Manchester City is so good that this could really be the point at which where the game is won and lost, but obviously, if I can see that Frank Lampard can clearly see that as he's a 
professional football manager so hopefully he will have some tricks up his sleeve in order to counteract that I think that's going to be one of Man City's weaknesses as well I mean if you look at the goals that they've conceded I mean Norwich in the well only good game that they've they've, they've played this season the the some of the goals that they scored were from Man City mistakes on the break. All you've got to do is look at both of the goals that Wolves scored at Dharma Traore with his pace on the break. Um, same with the full game, just mistakes made them concede goals. I think if if Chelsea are on the break and if you know Tammy Abraham and Mason Mount are feeling their clinical selves, I think they can definitely hurt Man City. As you said, they just need to be clinical. They, they, Chelsea will have the chances, and if they can put them away, then it, it does have the potential to be a very, very, very close game. Obviously, speaking of goal scorers, then I think that is a great segue to jump into Jules's football fantasy football segment, which we obviously missed last week, but it's back this week and better than ever, apparently. I mean, there wasn't any Premier League football to, to talk. About. I mean, I'm I'm sure there is a platform out there to play fantasy football with international football, but if you're playing that, oh gosh, you must really miss Premier League football. Um, so for the first time, I think on this segment, we've got three English players. On my on my list, um, the normal format is picking a one to watch, uh, the get rid and the captaincy choice uh, for the weekend. So, the one to watch, uh, I've gone for Harry Kane. Um, it's going to be a difficult switch if you want to bring him in, unless you've already got in a Bamiyang, because you're most likely going to have to uh, take out one of your premium midfielders to try and get him in. But my justification for that is, I think um, under Mourinho, they are going to have that. Um, you know, four or five game period where they they like start winning football games essentially, and with um, Harry Kane and Son to an extent being so pivotal in in the goal score in the goals, um, I think he's going to definitely be 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 the one to watch to to bring to your fantasy team. Um, Segwaying on to the get rid, if you do want to bring Harry Kane in, you might have to do so at the expense of Raheem Sterling. Um, I may live to to regret this decision. Um, uh, it, it, it provides a nice little segue to Sadio Mane if that's if that's a player that you want to bring in. Um, I just feel like um, with the classic Pep Guardiola um, player rotation, I think November December with the amount of fixtures that are going to be in play, I think um, the likes of Raheem Sterling and other Man City assets are going to be constantly rotated out, and you're better off having um, players from other sides that y- you know that are more than likely going to be. Um, starting almost every single one of the games in the December um, in the December fixture pileup, and my captain for the weekend, I've gone for I believe the top FPL point scorer at the moment in Jamie Vardy. Um, not the easiest game playing Brighton away. I normally don't make a habit of um, giving the captain's armband to somebody playing in an away game. However, I just feel like. In the form that he's in, considering he's not played any international football, that he, there's there's very little likelihood that that Leicester don't win this game, and that Jamie Vardy doesn't bag a goal or and hopefully assist as well. So being away didn't bother him too much against Southampton. Exactly. Especially <laughs> with the two picks you've got there, with Harry Kane, Jamie Vardy, the two strikers. If someone did have Aubameyang in their team, do you think that it would be worth maybe transferring him out for one of those two? Given that I think Aubameyang has gone a few couple games out scoring I think I think so you've got to, you've got to look at form obviously um, Jamie Vardy is is considerably cheaper than um, Aubameyang so if you want to upgrade one of your midfielders and, and bring in Jamie Vardy I mean um, my, my formation at the moment is a 3-5-2 with um, Tammy Abraham and uh, Jamie Vardy up front 
um, Lana's in pyjamas, is doing... Well, that's not my real team. Um, uh, it's doing it's doing decent. So I, I feel like um, there's there's the opportunity to get a few few points this weekend. In jewels we trust. Increase my increase my, um, my rank is around the three hundred thousand mark at the moment, and my target for the season is is top top one hundred k. That is considerably better than I'm doing. So <laughs> it should definitely be jewels in charge of that segment, and not me. So we're very lucky he's here. So uh, hopping away from Jules' fancy football segment, uh, we will now take a quick look at Aston Villa versus Newcastle. I was sort of looking at the fixtures for this weekend, and I think the only sort of conventional top six teams that are playing each other is the Chelsea-Manchester City game. So I thought it would be interesting to look at one that was maybe concerning teams at the other end of the table. Obviously, Aston Villa have not been playing as well as some people expected them to this season, as they are currently in... 17th position, just three points off the relegation zone, and Newcastle have been maybe better than some people expected because I think a lot of people thought that they would be in and around the relegation zone. They are currently seven points off it, which may not seem like a lot, but I think in the context of how many points you need to stay up, it may be proved to be uh, helpful at the end of the season. So do you think that the winner of this game will maybe be the one that staves off relegation? Um... I'm not sure because I think it's still quite early to say. Um, I, I predict Villa will dominate the game more than Newcastle because the way Newcastle is play, I've been playing this year is with less percentage of the ball. Um, and But then they've just been kind of, I guess, hitting them on the counter and just whenever any opportunity is available, that's how they've been kind of getting their wins. Um, whereas Villa, and they're at home as well, and being going to Villa Park is quite like it's very big atmosphere, very big stadium, very intense. Um, but I mean it, I feel like it's always quite fun watching two so-called bad teams play because it's like they could just both go at each other because they both want to win as like everybody talks about the top like four teams wanting to win and it's always fun watching them but sometimes when you're watching like City against I don't know Ever- like, what's Everton like Norwich or I don't know a team that you just know that maybe they're going to win it's not as fun Whereas watching two teams which are quite evenly matched and both not tr- not trying to get relegated is really fun just to watch them go at each other. I think it could be quite an attacking game. I think we need to remember as well that even though Villa have, have, have lost the last three, they have had some very tough games in City, Liverpool and Wolves. And I think we also need to remember how well they actually played against you know Liverpool. They, they put in a good, a, a good shift. Again, they did as well at City and Wolves and they, just, they did get unlucky. So... It would be an interesting game. I think Newcastle will have their work cut out for them with Villa. Um, Newcastle have done well so far, but I don't think yeah. we can write Villa off. They are a very good side. They've got that home advantage, which I th- think just Newcastle will struggle with. For me, this game has got one-one draw written all over it. I mean, it's going to be a it's going to be a, a, a cold Monday night in Birmingham. So, <laughs> is there any more fitting result than that? Absolutely. So, you just touched on the um, fact that. Aston Villa have lost the last three games against, you, as you said, a very tricky opposition. But as we sort of move into the festive period where there is a lot of fixtures coming thick and fast, do you think that maybe they do need to start trying to pick up momentum if they want to try and not be dragged into a relegation dogfight? This is the game that they need to win to pick up some momentum. It's like all the last three teams have been very hard teams to beat, whereas this is the one that if you're looking at the fixtures, you're going, we need to win this one. Because Newcastle, while they are doing pretty decent and not as close to relegation zone, they're still, in my books, one of the favourites to go down. I mean, I'm still of the opinion that I think the current in the current relegation zone, it's Norwich, Watford, and Southampton. Yeah. In, not necessarily in that order. Is that right? 
Uh, it is, but they are uh, Norwich at bottom with seven, and then Watford and Southampton are both on eight. But obviously, Watford, uh, Southampton have a terrible goal difference due to the nine-one shellac, no nine-nil shellacking <laughs> they received the other weekend. Fair enough. Uh, well, like like I said, um, um, I think this is this is probably a must-win game for Aston Villa if they want to start picking up some momentum. I mean, I remember having a conversation with with a Villa fan last week because um, obviously. Um, They've drawn Liverpool in the Carabao Cup um, in mid to late December. However, because of our Club World Cup commitments, um, we're going to have to play two separate squads, um, which means that you know the fringe players and the, the academy players are going to be playing Villa. And when I explained this to somebody, and they said, oh, we'll, we'll probably do the same, we'll probably play the fringe and the academy players. I said, why? Mm. Why would you do that? Because you, you win that game, you are suddenly... Um, in a semi-final, with the potential to to get to a to a final, but their justification of it was, oh, but all we're interested in this season is just staying up. Like, we don't we don't really want anything else from it. Because you do play two more games when you go to the semi-finals, I believe. Yeah, it's it's a um, two-legged tie. Yeah, yeah two. Le- I, I don't know who could create the system. It's quite, it's quite stupid to be honest. But yeah, anyway, two to three games, and that is going to go hit Villa more than it would Liverpool, in that sense, because Villa. Uh, just don't have the talent compared to Liverpool and don't have the squad depth I would say I personally would if I were like the, the Villa managers go for it yeah, but as a fan I'd love to see you go to the semi-final I mean I think yeah. they could get a big kick out of beating Liverpool they might just be their kids but they're the kids that knocked Arsenal's near enough you know, first team out so you'd get a decent kick out of it she said they get to a semi-final and that would help them with their, their momentum going into the busy Christmas period yeah. which, which they do need looking at um, obviously Aston Villa not performing too well in the league and she touched on that possibly being able to get into a Carabao Cup semi-final obviously Danny is a fan of a club that has got reasonably far in a cup competition while struggling in the Premier League uh, yeah I think well they won it a few years ago and Swansea and then last year they got to the quarter-final semi-finals against City so and the year before that they got to quarter-finals as well so it's it's a weird one because when it was the last season Swansea were in the Premier League it was like oh yeah we're getting far that's quite nice but then you were thinking the further we get the more chance we're going to get relegated. We saw Wigan, they won the FA Cup, but they got relegated as well. But I think I think it's, was that such a magical moment for there is something about Wigan fans worth it. to go to Wembley and see their players lift the, obviously one of the most famous trophies in all of football, aloft in the centre of the pitch. Was that worth it to see? Like if, for example, if they had still gone down and then, obviously you can't say because you don't know what would have happened, but if they did go down and they did maybe field a weaker strength team and never made it to the final is such a glorious opportunity for fans that obviously haven't maybe haven't seen a cup win like that well, exactly I mean it's it's more about like the memory you've always got the chance to, to get promotion and you're still going to carry on like playing football and winning games but the opportunity to be in a cup final and to, to, to win that especially against a team like Man City I mean it's 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 memories that you're going to treasure for the rest of your life and, and Villa's one of the most successful English clubs of all time exactly um, and they've not been as dominant as they were historically but you're going to remember the cup wins and it's always going to be in your history of that date and that that year you won it whereas like staying up and avoiding relegation that's never going to be in, like engraved into the club's wall like are we just survived by three points in 2019-20 season. They've won more European trophies than Arsenal, Spurs and Man City put together. So looking at um, like obviously winning domestic trophies, 
I think Spurs won the FA Cup in 1983, I believe, when yeah. Ozzy Ardiles played for them. Oh. I was writing a piece over the summer about Ozzy Ardiles, and I sort of read up about it. And I think reading what uh, to- uh, Tottenham fans have said about that cup victory, like they see it as like one of the pinnacles of the of supporting their club. Really, I think. I think as well, back in you know a few years ago, before you had all this money in the likes of the Champions League, the FA Cup was the thing to win. You know, for for English clubs, you hear a lot of players talk about how, you know, the thing they always wanted to win was that FA Cup because as kids, you know, you you go and see these FA Cup games. For a lot of them, you know, if you're not a season ticket holder, it's typically they have the cheaper tickets. And you think of the likes of Villa as well. A lot of their younger fans will have not seen them in their prime, uh, yeah. should we say, back when they were one of the best teams we've teams you know in England. And a lot of them will be fans because their dads, their granddads, their parents will have fallen in love with that Villa side who were so dominant. So for them to be able to see Villa lift a trophy, even if it is just the Carabao Cup, it's still silverware. And yeah. I think that, for those fans, it will, it will hook them. Well, my earliest memory of the FA Cup was the FA Cup final when West Ham lost to Liverpool and just how good of a final that was. And it was the Spurs when you had to write about the one where they played Manchester City. Uh, uh, or I think another different one. No, this was the nineteen eighty three one. I don't remember who they played in the final. It might have been Wolves or yeah, someone. Was, I, there's like but I think there was one Spurs and City were in, and that was considered one of the greatest finals. And I can't remember yeah. the result, but well, I think the one with Ricky Villa, and he scored the goal after like yeah. tripping over the guy's leg. Yeah, yeah that was fantastic. So, so Even the, I know that. And was I, it the one that went to the was it two legged? Yeah. And the, oh yeah, that, it was that one. Because the, 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 the first because the first leg it was the match. It was Manchester City, yeah, because the. Uh, one of their defenders scored at one end of the pitch and he also scored at the other end so the first game finished one all, and then it went to obviously the second leg where Ricky Villa did score I think the was final score 3-1 in that game maybe I mean I it's think. one of those things it's I well before my time and it was you know my dad was very young at that point as well but it's one of those things I know about that goal I know about how mental some of those fans went I'm lucky enough to sit around them when I go today and they, they just talk about how special it was to see that goal being scored and to know they were going to lift this illustrious cup as it was back then and I think silverware silverware at the end of the season no matter what competition it's in and every club would want to lift a bit of silverware at the end yeah. like I'm not going to you know as a Spurs I'm not going to turn down at a Carabao Cup and I don't think Villa fans will either so for them to get there I think I, I don't think they'll play their kids I really don't I think they'll play a strong team yeah. they know they can win yeah, before exactly. they inevitably lose to Man City in the final so just to um, sort of I, <laughs> I did look it up it wasn't it was about the 1981 FA Cup final that was my mistake and it was against Manchester City the first leg was drawn 1-0 and the second leg was won by Tottenham Hotspur 3-2 and the Ricky Viego you mentioned was actually voted Wembley goal of the century in 2001 so clearly it lives long in the memory for Tottenham Hotspur fans everywhere. If you haven't seen it, I'd highly advise going to watch it. It's a fantastic goal, no matter who you support. Yeah, definitely stick on YouTube this evening. It's definitely worth a watch. So I think that just about does it for our show this evening. It is about 10 o'clock. So remember, you can find us on Spotify and other podcast streaming services by just searching Goals Allowed. You can find me on Twitter at JakeSandyFC. You can find Danny. At Danny Hodges too. You can find Jules. At JulesSing underscore. And Amy, if you have Twitter, feel, 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 feel free to plug it now. I'm at AmyPerser underscore. Right, so everyone can sort of look and see our more less guarded views on things, perhaps, <laughs> than we... So, some stuff we maybe keep off air. The wonders of football Twitter. <laughs> so, as ever, thank you so much for listening. So, it's goodbye from me, it's goodbye from Danny. Goodbye. Goodbye from Jules. Thanks for listening. A very special thank you to Amy for being our first ever guest on the podcast. Thank you for having me, and goodbye. So, we'll see you back here live on Burn FM next Thursday evening at 9 o'clock. <laughs>